Hi, it's G3, and today we are going to mix things up a little bit. Number one, I am pleased to have both Jordi Visser and Mike Edwards from Weiss on the other sides of the table. And number two, rather than talk about our typical topics, China, crypto, inflation, or the Ukraine conflict in a narrow sense, we are going to instead focus in on Europe in general and the potential uncertainties emanating from there. So please stick around and check out important disclosures at the end of the episode. And if you feel like throwing some positive karma our way in the form of a review, we would certainly appreciate it. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording and I'm happy to have both Jordy and Mike, welcome gentlemen, with me today. Where I want to start off is as follows. This year, we've talked a lot about the Fed on this podcast. We've talked a lot about inflation. Mike, you've done an amazing job in helping us to think through China and all the implications thereof. But lately, both of you and Lundy, for that matter, have been casting your gaze a little bit more towards Europe. And it's also true in the morning seeds. So I would like to spend some time with you today, gentlemen, to talk about why. What are the emerging risks that we see right now that could potentially undermine Jordy's overall constructive view of where the markets are headed? And Mike, I'd like to have you set the stage here. As you look across the world, and specifically in Europe, why is it kind of the locus, even more so than China, perhaps, as to where we're seeing the greatest uncertainties on the horizon? Good to be here, G3, and thanks for setting that up. There's a couple of reasons why I think we're focused, and maybe it is through a risk lens on Europe, but I think a lot of them come back to our focus on energy markets in general and the dependence of both from an inflation standpoint, but also general market health on energy input control, which Europe simply does not have. And the Russia-Ukraine conflict has obviously exacerbated that. There are a lot of inputs into this discussion, but I do think that relative to the trend, as it were, in the US and the rate of change of policy uncertainty, and even arguably in Asia, Europe is in the worst position. They're the most exogenous variables and they have the fewest policy control or the least amount of policy control over them. And so that's, I think, where the focus comes from. I think there, there's obviously a lot of dynamism around both some seasonal impacts, which maybe we'll talk about, but also given geopolitically that you have to find agreement within the EU to get things done. And you are also, as far as the impact of neighbors, in this case, Russia in particular, there's a particular vulnerability that we really don't see anywhere else. The last time I checked, they have not canceled winter, correct? <laughs> not for lack of trying, I'm sure. Yeah, not yet. Can you speak to how winter and the fact that even though it is 95 and sweltering, winter has a profound impact that is on our minds as we head towards the fall here? With a little Game of Thrones nostalgia, I appreciate that certainly winter is coming and it is inevitable. The head fake here as far as 
kind of making it through the summer from at least in terms of the levels of economic activity and some some of the data that we're seeing, parts of Europe, particularly the South, look reasonably strong. And I think at least a partial explanation for that is the sheer amount of post-pandemic revenge tourism and U.S. to Europe travel you're seeing. It's in through that lens, it's not a coincidence that France, Italy, Spain, all seeing positive periodic growth, whereas the North, Germany in particular, seeing negative. And for those who actually are breaking out tourism adjacent sectors, those are double digit positive offset by everything else being negative. And, and that trend, even before we talk about the energy input, that trend will not continue in the winter. So as far as a sector reckoning, that's coming. And then the other, of course, is capturing the image from the Economist cover from a few weeks ago of of a Russian bear lumbering over a a snow-covered European forest, right? Obviously, the ability to actually get gas flowing from the east is going to be incredibly important. Mike, I'm glad you mentioned Germany. For those people who are maybe not following it that closely, can you just give us a quick snapshot of why the situation in Germany is so dire as we head into the latter end of the year? Yeah. So, and it does require taking a quick step back to German industrial policy generally, which was authored by, among other people, Gerhard Schroeder, who became chairman of the European arm of Gazprom. Not a coincidence. Yes. How convenient. But basically, if if I'm being a bit cynical, German industrial policy is to turn Russian molecules of energy uh, into manufactured goods by mixing them with German labor and exporting those to the US and China. What could go wrong? For a while, it felt like absolutely brilliant and you had massive current account surpluses and that sort of thing. We've seen in very short order exactly what can and did go wrong and you now have a current account deficit in Germany that we haven't seen since 1991, which is remarkable, and complete and total dependence at a time when you're turning off the sources of energy independence such as coal and nuclear and turning on or turning up, as it were, Nord Stream 2 following Nord Stream 1 and that Russian gas dependence, all while trying to transition to clean energy. So it's a point of sort of maximum vulnerability from a cross-border input standpoint for the German economy. Jordi, in the situation that Germany finds itself in now, where we see rationing of power already taking place in August, I just want to ask you, Is Germany the ultimate poster child of how ESG can go wrong? Yeah, I guess if you're going to put it in those terms, there is an element, and I want to be delicate with this because in no way are the goals of ESG the cause of what's going on. But when you make it a dramatic shift to wanting to reduce use of fossil fuels and you have Russia, who obviously does not benefit from that movement, You've again, as I'll say in a lot of these podcasts, you got a combustible situation. So a lack of investment in energy and then having a situation where I would say the clock is ticking on Russia to do something probably creates this. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is, which I do believe is happening, and this is something we talked about on the podcast last week, I think there is a chance that the situation is actually speeding up a solution for energy faster than what would have happened with just the normal course of a lack of investment into fossil fuels. And the reason is, with what has gone on in the move in inflation, you can say that crypto has fallen dramatically. The tech sector globally has fallen dramatically. A lot of smart people were going into those areas 
At the same time, energy has gone higher. I talked about an early podcast this year about this relationship between commodity prices and technology and that you're always sourcing the best people and the dollars for innovation. What has happened with the Russia-Ukraine situation as we go into the winter, and as much as I agree that this is a big event, and I can't say this enough to people listening, we put the content from our morning meeting on our website for a reason. I think this might be the most important time for people to be looking daily because we will have stuff on Europe in there that will be coming out that you won't see in the papers and putting it into market context. I actually believe that the fears over the winter – and the fact that power prices are going higher, power prices going higher has a negative impact on demand. Rationing has a negative impact on demand. Demand slowing is going to hurt oil and isms are coming down. And so in a weird way, we're moving this stuff lower. And I think that relationship will hold. But more importantly, I actually believe that what's going on in energy is that the Russia invasion of Ukraine speeding up something that was going to happen is in a weird way, like what COVID did to messenger RNA, it mm. sped up it coming to the market and being accepted more. And I think you're going to see innovation coming out of the energy and clean sector at a much faster pace because the need has accelerated. And if I could just pick up on that, it has long been the case in the energy sector just for different reasons now. The solution to high prices is high prices. The thing that's in incentivizing that sort of development as well as infrastructure build out for fossil fuel transportation on the continent, which is something that has been deeply lacking. That, oh my God, we're getting it now. Fair enough to all that, but let's be honest, Vladimir Putin is terrible for animal spirits. <laughs> in the short term, I think that's true, but I'm not sure I would agree with that, you know, sort of in the medium. I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of medium term and long term, but he's not going to live forever. And he certainly daylighted some vulnerabilities that occasionally require an exogenous shock to be daylit. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine and a lot of that is absolutely horrible. And I agree with that in terms of the animal spirits point. But from an industrial organization standpoint and from the way that markets actually incent the deployment of capital, there are some silver linings here. Fair enough. At least in the energy independence and, or codependence space. Fair enough. Let's talk about a related topic here that has confounded a lot of market participants. The dollar, Jordy, refuses to go down. If anything, it has continued to strengthen in recent weeks and months. How does that play in to your analysis and where you think we're headed as the year unfolds here? In my mosaic of looking at markets, it is the one... I would say asset that as of now is still sending off alarm bells. The euro has not rallied, which I think is important. And the Asian dollar index has not rallied yet. Now, this is not abnormal when you're coming out of a recession, which is what I believe the markets are discounting, is that we're at the worst of the growth side or the worst of inflation, whichever you want to take. What I will say is I think what we're talking about in this podcast is one of the major reasons why the dollar is not falling. I think we need to get through the fears over Europe. China is still going back and forth under zero COVID policy, which again has not helped because for the currencies, since they are relative value or relative charts, it's not just the dollar. It's how are the other countries doing? And the problem is right now that China is stuck trying to get animal spirits and they're not showing any signs yet of their economy lifting. And neither is Europe. The U.S. might be stable. We're still creating jobs. It's still good. 
But Europe, outside of tourism from people that have been pent up to go there, I think their economy is probably weaker than what people realize because of the things Mike mentioned. You can't ration and you can't have power prices at this level and not have a slowdown. So I don't see how there's a stimulus part without getting through the fears over Putin. So when you say Putin's not good for animal spirits... I mean, I'm laughing at it, A, because he's never been good for animals, but he never will be. <laughs> but the second thing is, it's only three months ago that the biggest fear regarding Putin was a nuclear episode. Mm. Now we're worried about something related to gas. I don't think he's going away. And I certainly don't think that there won't be something that people worry about. But markets are pretty good at getting through things. And that's one of the reasons why I said on the podcast last week, I think what would help the most right now for this whole situation, which I think is likely to happen, is if oil takes another leg lower, that's going to help the European situation a lot, regardless of what Putin's doing. And that's why I think this relationship between keeping power at higher levels, causing rationing, calling fall off, well, that'll lead to oil prices going lower, which will help on the central bank side. And I think that's what markets are looking at, because there's been an inverted correlation right now between gas futures in Europe and oil prices. So as gas futures in Europe have been going higher, oil prices have been going lower. And I think that's an indication that this pressure that we're looking at the wintertime is actually hurting demand for oil. Yeah. And it's leading to, to pre-rationing the agreement in, out of Brussels to set aside 15% now to start saving is the response to what we've talked about, the various things that Putin is weaponizing. I would argue in a markets context, he's weaponizing uncertainty around the Nord Stream 1 flows and things like this. He just keeps throttling back and forth because that's a demonstration of control and the inability to plan and make decisions and that sort of thing where you rely on inputs. And a rational response to that is to start creating a buffer, which is what, in fact, Europe is doing. Is that working as far as stabilizing demand? Not yet, but that is a, to your point on winter is coming, it's going to at least make the harshest outcomes less harsh, potentially. I want to touch upon a couple of other points here as it relates to Europe. Mike, could you talk about TPI and why it's important in assessing Europe's economic situation? Yeah. So TPI, just to get out as usual of, of acronym soup, is yes, the, please. the transmission protection instrument that the ECB is using to effectively manage the periphery. And what you're really touching on here is it's not a new concept at all. It's the sort of tension that goes back to the Grexit discussions and all of this from we have just celebrated the anniversary or the, the decade anniversary of Mario Draghi's bumblebee speech, the whatever it takes speech from 2012, which was the ECB's commitment to effectively hold the euro and the eurozone together right? from a monetary standpoint. The issues behind that have never gone away. They're being exacerbated now for a variety of reasons, but the energy independence question is a really, really big one. And the shakiest house on the block, so to speak, is Italy. So when we talk about the TPI as an initiative, it's effectively the tool that the ECB feels it needs to keep BTB bun spread, so the Italy-Germany price of sovereign credit, from widening too much and thus destabilizing the Italian economy or even the peripheral and for the most part southern economies in Europe through that credit transmission problem. And the reason that in turn is so important is because when Draghi gave that speech a decade ago or in various other points of time, we've been able to manage toward below the zero bound on European rates 
And you've effectively been managing from the standpoint of a current account, massive current account surplus in Germany. Now it's a much more sensitive time. Again, zooming even further out in history, not a decade out, but let's go back 80, 90 years. We have 9% spot inflation in Germany. We have a current account deficit. We have a war in the East and Europe. And the tension is sort of obvious. So holding these things together, which requires Germany being willing to support Italy in this case, but the periphery, not so obvious. I would say that one of the other silver linings, if we're looking for them in the Ukraine situation, has been political unity in Europe. But it's not showing up everywhere. And at a time when, given the inflation that we've discussed extensively, the ECB has to get nominal rates above the zero bound, the damage that can do in Italy has to be offset by something. So they've created this, what at this point appears to be still a fairly vague capability of going out and buying Italian bonds. So on the one hand, you're moving rates. On the other hand, in moving from a QE to a QT regime to quantitative tightening, they're creating this sort of exception to that, which is the ability to go buy Italian bonds. Can you speak to why September 25th is an important date to watch as it relates to your assessment of Europe's ability to handle the periphery? This is really the point at which we'll determine Italy's, I don't want to be so dramatic as to say, political future, but at least how we climb out of the post-Draghi kind of technocratic era, as it were, in managing things. After he lost support and resigned, you've had a pretty significant lurch rightward, if we're to believe the polls. And it does look like in uh, September 25th, Georgia Maloney and a coalition of right-leaning, very far right-leaning, frankly, parties will take control of the Italian parliament, which is going to be quite different from the centrist right coalition that prevailed before. I think the broader significance of that, it may or may not be impactful on Italian finances. I think a little bit of chaos has sort of always been priced in there, but it certainly does cement a trend in a sort of populist nationalist reaction to inflation on the one hand, immigration on the other not trying to be alarmist, but even Maloney herself would acknowledge that they're not not fascists in yes. terms of this coalition. And very, that, that's very troubling doublespeak. Yeah. When, when we go back to the broader arc of European history, there's some cause for concern there. And how much of that concern relates to the potential for the situation in Italy to spread? You're well aware of movements in France and even in the UK that are similar. Yeah, certainly the UK has made that lurch. They're no longer part of the EU. That's simple. I mean, Macron was able to get reelected, but he immediately lost his centrist majority in parliament. And I do think that is a trend and it's centrifugal trend, if you will, which again, the unity around Ukraine notwithstanding, it's everyone for themselves. And it's a, it's a very stark reminder that we have monetary without fiscal union in the EU. And that is absolutely a structural headwind to the euro doing, as Jordi was talking about a minute ago, you know, doing what it should at this point in what we see as the cycle. Jordi, you talk a lot about the importance of being adaptive, and you've also referenced speed chess on many occasions here. And I'm wondering, as you wield your Bloomberg at Europe, what are the things that you look at to ultimately help you determine whether or not to change your views on any aspect of your sort of core thesis as to where markets are headed. 
So we don't talk about Europe on this, and you, I thought you introduced it well in terms of the fact that if it wasn't for Russia, Ukraine, we may not have talked about Europe at all this year, and the pressure may not be on there because a lot of times, like with Japan, for really since I'd say I entered the business in the early 90s, Japan doesn't really contribute to global GDP. The difference is between Europe and Japan, when you combine the EU China and the U.S., you're dealing with 75% of global GDP. So you have a very important situation when any of those countries is at a point where we're talking about it like this. Just to give you an idea, I mean, that's as top heavy as any analytics that I want to use towards contribution. After you get through those three, I'm going to take the U.K. out. It's not as part of the EU. The U.K. is the next biggest country. And that would be less than 3% of global GDP. So Europe's situation does matter. And what I'm looking for, and part of the reason I started to turn more positive in June, and this occurred while I was in Italy, the concept of fragmentation started. And I bring this up at this point because for Europe to have a significant recession to me is possible, but it's a tail event that I don't see as likely. I still believe that Europe will contribute to the positive outcome in the second half of the year, despite all the things we're talking about, as long as the credit spreads in Europe don't widen, which as of now has, they've stayed stable, but that would be the first thing that I would look at with Italy leaving. For all the things we talked about, Italy, Italian spreads have come in. More importantly, their yields on their 10-year bonds have come down, I think about 100 basis points from the peak when I was in Italy and fragmentation started as a concept. We haven't got the fragmentation details yet, but there's a lot of positives that can come. And just like we saw this month, at times you get these events that they're coming up, people freak out for a period of time. And then regardless, unless something major happens, they can cause kind of disruption for a period of time. But people forget these things going forward. So the first thing is going to be credit spreads for me. The second thing is the euro. I do think the euro needs to rally. There has been a high correlation over the last five years between Italian spreads and the euro. So if fragmentation comes in and if there's not a big event in energy or if I say rather than Putin not doing something or doing something, whatever the case is, I think if oil prices fall and we get into the low 80s, high 70s in WTI, I think that'll rectify the situation at the same point. So I am watching. I do think Europe matters, but I think it's going to fall in the credit spreads and it's going to fall in the currency. And as long as those things are stable to slightly better, I think that's going to be a situation that ends up being a positive for the rest of the world. You are so positive these days. I still think you have the main vibes deeply embedded into your thinking. You know what? When you go to the racetrack and the investors all have 20 to 1 odds on your opinion, you just keep betting it because <laughs> at this point, no one's changing their mind and the market's telling me I'm right and people aren't jumping on board. So if something happens and all of a sudden I go to a dinner and Mike comes back from when he goes, every single CIO at the dinner I was at last night was positive. I'll start to worry. But until that <laughs> happens, we're not even close to that. All right. That's, on that that's note. That's definitely not the trend right now. That is definitely not the trend right now. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, G3. Thanks. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. 
should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.